and I said, let me post something to you. Let's assume we're down in our training room downstairs. Now five suddenly become eight, threes become nine, sixes become fives. What does that do to our training positions? All of a sudden, you see eyes getting very wide. And they said, can that really happen? I said, absolutely. Now the viruses weren't that sophisticated at the time, but it was logically possible. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on the first of what will be a two-part conversation, I speak with Steve Katz, unofficially the first CISO, about how he's seen cybersecurity grow in scope from the early 80s to where we are today. How do you secure a business when the concept of cybersecurity is still in its infancy? Not just in your organization, but in general. How do you stand up to the old school boys club bankers and say, this might be an unpopular move and people might not understand the why behind your new policies, but someone's got to do it. All right, Mr. Katz, good morning and thank you for joining us. Uh, How are you today? It's a beautiful day here on Long Island. The sun is shining. Should be up in the uh, low 60s. And if I can find a way to sneak off to uh, the beach, I will do that. <laughs> Perfect. If you would, for the uninitiated, for those that may not know, Steve, who are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Personal side, we've raised five kids. We have 13 grandkids. Uh, one is a physician. One is graduating from law school. Another one is. Uh, Getting re- it's finishing up a program in mechanical engineering. Another one is getting ready to start med school. Another one's getting ready to start med school. Just an incredibly wonderful, wonderful family. 13 grandkids sort of reach out and help each other, and that's the biggest blessing we have. Fortunately, I have no hobbies, so I stay active in the information security community, mentoring CISOs, sitting on boards of small companies. So work has become my hobby. And I think I'm very fortunate because if you have that, you're never really working. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's not work. We're going to spend today talking a lot about kind of how you got here and some of your kind of career stories. What was your kind of, um, I guess it's one of your claims to fame. What was that many years ago with J.P. Morgan? When I came out of the university a thousand years ago, we didn't have electricity, by the way. Right. We were part of an internal consulting group that uh, actually thought about security before anyone else really thought about security. And we started putting an ID and password modules and COBOL and Fortran code. And then mainframe technology came out. And since I was able to spell security, was called by a recruiter and asked me if I'd be willing to interview at Morgan Guarantee. It's way before JPMC to help them get started with their data security program. At the time, we had uh, those three mainframe security products, RACF, ACF2, and Top Secret. What's interesting, lots of companies had put in uh, password modules and application code, and the the RACFs and Top Secrets and ACF2s were really the first attempt at uh, single sign-on, because we were then able to do away with the uh, 
application code uh, security. And it was a marvelous challenge because there was nothing. Bank examiners got really, really fired up and realized that mainframe security products were out there. So they required every financial services company to install a mainframe security product. And a year and a half, two years later, they woke up and said, now that you bought it, you really have to install it. <laughs> right, right. And interviewed Ed Morgan, there were a Rack F shop. And uh, I guess Rack F, top secret ACF2 came in where you had to opt out. Automatically, everyone was locked out of access to, to everything. Rack F gave you the ability, you had to opt in. So everyone had access to everything. So my first way to lose friends, uh, my first act of uh, a head of security over there was to change the access rules so that access was equal to none, so that you actually had to have an ID password and uh, didn't make a lot of friends with that. Steve, tell us if you would. I mean, so this is a point in time, a lot of people will smile at this. And I, this is before my time. I mean, I'm familiar with these platforms and what they do and why they're necessary. But this sounds like, so you, you go and you lock everyone out. You had to develop a lot of process around this as well, because now you've got to have a way. How do these folks request access? Had they ever done that before? Right? Are they mad at you? I mean, what, what did you do to build all of that? But we gave them some fair warning. Also gave the CIO some fair warning because it uh, was going to really upset to his apple cart. Sent out emails, not time the email system with the mainframe system called Profs and said, by the way, in 30 days, uh, unless you request access to a particular application, you're not going to have it. I'm not sure how, well, how believed we were, but 30 days later, we, we uh, turned it on and there was a lot of hooting and hollering. And within, <laughs> I would say within 90 days, it sort of died down. We also found out from that point on that when and if anything happened, if there was a, uh, anyone changed the application code, it was always a security problem. If we took out backups, there wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that Steve, that still lives today. Absolutely. Any kind of damn outage or problem, it's it's a security tool. Now, sometimes it actually is, but in most cases, it's sort of the uh, the scapegoat that keeps people, you know, throw the throw the hot potato right to somebody else. Well, we we did some kind of crazy innovative things. The help desk was really a phone on my secretary's desk. And when we all broke for lunch, we had a tape answering machine so that if somebody had a problem, they would call, they would get the tape answering machine. But we also put in some kind of innovative stuff. Uh, we began to roll out uh, deck fax environments. We began to roll out uh, AS400s and uh, the world of PCs came in. Yeah. And what was really cool is the uh, CIOs came out and said, uh, we are not going to allow those PCs in the bank. And the first people to ignore them were the people in the training room who brought in uh, Apple technology as well as uh, IBM PCs and happily expensed them. So the uh, the word was out that, okay, I got it. You can bring them in, but you're not going to be allowed to network, the, network them. And that also lasted for about, uh, you know, less than a minute. Now, Steve, this reminds me a lot of even what we see today. So that I've got kind of two points or questions. This reminds me of somebody with their Amex that wants to buy access to some sort of cloud service and they just put it on their card and they just do it. They don't give a damn, right? This this is a replay probably 
you know, 30 to 40 years later of that exact same thing. And then today's security teams have to sort of scramble to lock it down or make it somewhat manageable. Is that, would you say that's a parallel? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. <laughs> Only instead of bringing on a, uh, a desktop PC or, or Apple uh, technology, you actually bring on the fairly sophisticated technology that you run on your credit card. <laughs> right. I mean, Shadow IT was very different then. The other thing we did, which was kind of really cool, Morgan was one of the very first to allow for dial-in access into the mainframes. And at the time, uh, war dialers became fairly prevalent because the bad guys used a war dialer to dial into a network and then see where they could go and also get free uh, phone access. Right, right. And the war dialers were, were programmed so that uh, you'd fill, put in an area code Three digits, then go from well, you know four zeros to four nines, then go on to the next one. But they were programmed to wait for three rings. If they didn't get a modem tone, they went on to the next number. So we got really smart, and we took all the dialing all the modems at the bank and had them set not to pick up until five rings. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff you have to do if there's not a product for it, or if there's not a a, a known method, you have to get creative. So that's sort of security through obscurity, as they'd say. I like that. The other thing we did, which was really great, uh, the data security officers at all the New York banks would get together every three months or so to you know, spend the morning eating, you know, eating donuts and bagels and drinking coffee and just talking about what was going on. So we all had each other's phone numbers, pager numbers, home numbers, desktop numbers. So we did have an active community, and that became a forerunner of what ultimately became the, the, the various ISACs, the uh, business sectors. So we were able to help each other out because we were all, you know, plowing new fields. How did that begin? So there's not the internet like there is today. There's not Twitter. There's not LinkedIn. You've got to figure out who's the guy across the street or down the road that's got the same set of headaches I got. How did you set that up? Mostly it was, hey, do you know so-and-so at another bank? And it was it was actually personal networking. And we, there was also a group called I4, which is still, maybe today was one of the very earliest uh, information security organizations. And then RSA was also out there. So we were suddenly able to tap into mailing lists and figure out who was who. But interestingly enough, it was just the banks. There wasn't the broker-dealers. Hmm. It got, it caused some interesting stuff. We had, uh, you know, I don't want to burn up too much of your time, but one of our vendors, one of the vendors at Morgan and I would uh, get into it every few weeks because I do a bunch of security requirements. I'll leave them out because it's really unfair, but there's some security requirements that wanted on his products. And, uh, he kept telling me I was the only person who wanted that. And I really didn't know what the hell was going on. And, uh, his product was offering these services and operational efficiency we had to have. And I said, Dave, you've got to, you've got to come up with this. And he said, Steve, you're just out of your mind. So at one of our quarterly information security officer meetings, we brought out this piece of high-tech technology called the Polycom. <laughs> yeah. Called up and got him on the phone and said, hi, Dave, it's Steve from, from Morgan. You know, we're talking about the security requirements that I need from your product, and you're telling me, that I've been getting it all wrong. He says, yeah, I really, you really, have you, have you seen the light? I said, well, sort of, kind of. I'm sitting here with uh, 
my counterparts at 12 other banks. And all you heard was, oh, blank, 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 blank. <laughs> so did you get what you needed? There? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. <laughs> so what were they, were they, did they, I assume there was features. They didn't want to change their code base, right? Because that's expensive. The code base was too difficult. Yeah, yeah. Until 12 or 13 banks say, hey, we need to have this. And they did the same thing to all of us. You are the only ones who want it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so you you did an end around. Tell us if you would, you and I had an earlier conversation, but tell the story, if you would, about uh, your first presentation to the board. A story I love. I repeated a number of times. Jenna called me, certainly Peter Tippett, who's fairly well known in the industry now ran the, one of the very, very early uh, anti-PC virus products. Yep. And he asked if he could come in and meet with me and uh, demonstrate his product. And I said, sure, come on in. We'll, we'll show what you have. And a bunch of, couple of uh, five and a quarter inch uh, discs, and he put them in different uh, IBM desktops in my area. And we came up with uh, a bunch of PC viruses. So. Letters would fall down at the bottom of the screen. Nothing particularly scary, but uh, they existed. Yeah. So I went into my boss and said, Bill, I've got to talk to you about this PC virus thing. And he said, do me a favor, leave me alone. Uh, I'm preparing for my board meeting tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Why don't you catch me before the board meeting and brief me on it? <laughs> I got there by 10 to 10, told him what it was all about, and he said, I'd like you to go and take the first 10 minutes of uh, my presentation and tell the board of directors uh, what this is all about. And got a picture of the boardroom at Morgan Guarantee. With, you know, it was huge. The table was huge. An imposing picture of J.P. Morgan you know, on the wall. And we saw the scions of the financial institutions around the, the world sitting on the board. And I had like zero, zero preparation. Steve, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you have... I would have been a mess. You have zero prep. You've got no time. You've got an idea and a little bit of a story. Was your CIO okay with that? Like, did he knew he was putting you in that with no prep? Yeah, we figured uh, if anyone's going to fall on the sword, it would be me and not him. <laughs> okay. And I, so I got in there, and I think the presentation guys were really smiling on me that day. And so I looked around, and here these, at that time, was nowhere nearly the age I'm at now. I some grumpy-looking older men. And I said, I, I'm assuming oh, some of you have seen the articles in newspapers or on television about computer viruses. And some heads sort of shook up and down. And they said, they're real. I said, but let me pose something to you. Let's, let's somewhere down in our trading room downstairs. And five suddenly become eights, threes become nines, sixes become, you know, become fives. What does that do to our trading positions? All of a sudden, you see eyes getting very wide. And they said, can that really happen? I said, absolutely. Now, the viruses weren't that sophisticated at the time, but it was logically possible. Right. So can it really happen? I said, without a doubt, can you make it go away? <laughs> and I said, no, but I can reduce the likelihood of it happening, but I cannot make it go away. And the two things that came out of that and carried me well with, you know, throughout my career is talk about the business impact. Tell a story. But yes. information security has to have a business impact. It has to have a so what. Otherwise, it shouldn't be there. And second, be transparent. 
I cannot make it go away. I can reduce the likelihood. And they said, okay, you sure you can't make it go away? Yes, sir, I'm sure I cannot make it go away. What will it take to reduce the impact? I said, $400,000. I said, go do it. <laughs> so, okay, I want to run a little bit of that back. So how old were you when you gave that presentation? And what do you think was the average age of the board members? How old were you when you, when you delivered that? Probably somewhere in my 30s, early 30s. Okay. And these guys had to be anywhere from 50 to 70. Okay. So you were by far, I mean, you were a pup in comparison. Yeah. And what was the mood? Because there's a, those folks earn that spot. And there's a character that goes along with that. And I'm guessing that the 30-year-old Steve in there talking about PC viruses, you made it business relevant, but they had to look at you like a space alien. Not really, because what I spoke to them about was the relevance of this to their business. Yeah. Nothing to do with technology. And in reality, information security, uh, and you can go back to my presentations in the 80s, the subtitle of every presentation I did is, information security is a business risk management issue. Yes. If you're not focusing on business risk, if there isn't really a very solid so what in terms of business risk, you have no reason to be there. You mentioned making it relevant to the business, giving the so what and telling a great story. And I, I love that. I've said before that the greatest storytellers throughout history typically ate well. They had uh, the, the best plot when there was travelers and storytellers, right? They, if you were a good storyteller, you ate well. And in this example, you, you achieved your goal. You got the, the funding. When did you, as a storyteller, you're telling them about these viruses they're loosely familiar from the news or media or maybe radio. When did you tell them that you actually ran this antivirus software from Tippett on some of, of Morgan's assets? Did you wait for them to ask and then say, I've actually done an analysis? When did you drop that fact? Was it early or, or after they questioned? I never dropped the fact. They never asked. I never answered. The other thing is, answer the questions that are asked. Don't volunteer information when it's not asked for. It'll just get you in trouble. Wow. Okay. So you weren't going to you weren't going to pull that card unless somebody pushed you on it. Yeah, exactly right. They got the message. They got the message. I got the authority. Yeah, I mean that's I was waiting, so I was way off. I would have thought that in your delivery that you would have that someone either would have asked or you would have volunteered. And that is fascinating. I would have bet a $100 bill that they would have said, well, how do you know we have viruses? Didn't concern them at all. <laughs> the reality, and I don't sell, but the reality is how, when you take a course in selling, they said, you know, learn when to shut up. Yeah. Know when to shut up. Gave, I told them a story. They were interested. They understood what I was saying. They gave them the authority to move forward. You had 10 minutes. Did you use all 10 minutes? I used about three. <laughs> that was going to be, uh, I, I was wondering that. So that's, that's another lesson. So you go in there and you get 400 grand. And what year is this, Steve? Uh, it has to be like 82, 83. No, maybe a little more 84, something like that. Okay. In 1984, to put it in perspective, I think a new Corvette, I think, 
brand new, I think, was about $12,000, I think. Probably right. Somewhere in there. might be a, a little bit more. So you go in, you're, and the CIO is in the room when you, when you lead off. You're the lead hitter. And you, you get four hundred grand on a three-minute presentation. Hmm? What's your CIO doing? For being thankful that I, took, I did the presentation, he didn't have to. <laughs> and then did he, yeah, I mean, so then he gave his, his shtick. Did you guys meet up after and kind of think, oh, goodness, uh, you know, what, what, what next? Like what now? How, what, how, what, was his, what were his questions when you guys got out of the boardroom? Uh, he just, uh, you know, arm on the shoulder, thanks so much. Let's go make this happen. <laughs> now, did they invite you back to give an update? That's the other th- question I've yeah, got. Yeah, and the, I mean, the crazy part is you roll out a product like an antivirus product. And you, I guess you see the equivalent with COVID today. When you start testing, you see lots of viruses. Yeah. So we went from zero because we didn't know we had them to thousands. And the first reaction is, how come, you know, we went from zero, you bring in a product and we have thousands of viruses? And the answer is very simple. They were there all the time. We just didn't know it. Yeah. Was it difficult to explain that, hey, we were, we were ignorant to this, right? I mean, we were, they were there, as you said, but we weren't managing them. Was that a tough message to deliver? Or did they, did they get that? the testing was the process or, or did you get pushback on that? Not at all. They were absolutely, they understood. If you, if, you know, if something's there and you don't know about it, that's one thing. Once, once you start testing, you know about it. Now you, now you can do something about it. Did you and Tippett become friends? Very much so. We still are today. I was curious on that because I wonder if he knew when he was going in, if that was part of his, because it sounds like he was not only the, the CEO, but also kind of the sales guy. And he's going around, you know, that had to have been tough business initially. Tippett has an MD and also a PhD and he's a PhD and he's one of the uh, ancillary medical sciences. Yeah. And didn't he ultimately sell that technology? It became the core technology for an antivirus. Yeah. Which then that kind of folded into what we now know, I believe, is McAfee or their, their suite. Uh, no, it's still part of Norton. Still separate? Okay. Yeah. So Tippett, was he surprised when you phoned him? Because it hadn't been that long when he was out chatting with you. And then it just so happens that you've got a board meeting now that you've been invited to last minute. You phoned him. And how did $400,000 come up? How did you, how did you scope that? Like, where did that number come from? Did, did you have that? Or did, you just, did they make it up? Or how did you scope that? I spoke to Peter. I said, what would it take to get this thing installed? And he said, about, you know, between two hundred and five hundred thousand, so I figured I was safe with four hundred. <laughs> okay, I wish procurement processes were that simple these days. When you have board approval, procurement processes become very simple. <laughs> so I, I love that story, and I, I I'm glad that you uh, shared it for us. I think there's a lot of lessons out of that, especially I love the so what factor, and you know you you shared with me kind of as an extension of this. You made the comment uh, that every executive believes that they are smart. What did when you said that? What did you mean by that? What they, so everyone believes they 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 are smart. How does that change the way you deliver a message and the way you recommend others that work for you deliver a message? I was deadly serious when I said that. I said every executive, every board member really believes that they are because they're very smart. So when you're going to meet with them, and you you don't get your point across. 
they know they're smart enough to understand it, which means you were too incompetent to explain it. <laughs> right. Right. And when I, my team would always know that, look, when you're going to meet with anybody, the executive leadership or the board, go through it carefully. And I said, because I don't want to call from the person saying, the guy you sent in or the gal you sent in was incompetent. So rehearse it, rehearse it, and then go over it with your grandmother. If your grandmother's going to understand it, if it passes the grandma test, it will pass the executive test. And they will drill down as deeply as they want. But they want a clear message, and they know they're capable of understanding it. Uh, and Einstein, you know, was famous in saying, if you, you know, make it simple, if you can't make it simple, you don't understand it. Correct. I have struggled with that. I've gotten better with it, but I still struggle. I think that is an extremely fine art to take something, especially that's abstract, and make it simple. Uh, that is both uh, me and, and my, my teams today and in my past have drilled on that brevity, simplicity, try to have this minimalist approach to the way that you articulate the value you bring or the problem at hand. We struggle with that now more than ever. I think, well, there's a variety of reasons. Why do you think that technical people, security people, both of yesteryear and today struggle with that? They are so used to speaking, with all due respect, geek speak. They're all used, so used to dealing with how you get something done as, to, as opposed to what you're getting done and why you, want to get, why you want to have it done. Technology guys are really good at figuring out how. But if you don't have a really good understanding of why and why, how, how it's not important. And the minute you get into how, you're losing people. Right? If you go into a uh, you know, restaurant and you order sausage and eggs for breakfast, all you want is a sausage that, that tastes good. You don't want to know how the damn sausage is made. <laughs> right. I assure you most people don't want to know how sausage is made coming from, yeah, coming from a farm. Why would any executive want to know how you're wiring something together? How you, uh, what you're looking for in terms of, uh, uh, you know, staple injection or what? It's, it's absurd. Here's the problem we're solving. Right. That it's trust in our business process can be broken because our information was wrongfully changed. We want to avoid that, right? It's a potential impact. Right, right. You know, some of the other things you and I talked about shifting gears a little bit. We talked about what I would consider CISO awareness of, of the position and the motivations behind the attainment of, of a similar you know, CISO or similar role. One of the things we chatted about is the stress that affects CISOs. There's been reports that people have done surveys, uh, articles of late where there's high levels of substance abuse, divorce. Uh, heart attack, stroke, aneurysm, stress, just unhealthiness. Why do we have that from your perspective? Why do you think that it's such, has it become such a stressful position? I did a talk shortly after the study came out. And I said, my contention is that the CISO doesn't really understand his or her job. They haven't defined it clearly. They are, too many of them are, overly concerned about getting fired if there is a breach. So, you know, the analogy I come up with, if you were a molecular biologist working for a major pharmaceutical company, 
take the medication or the drug you came out with and it goes through animal trials and phase one human trials, phase two, phase three, it fails at phase three, and you've now spent one and a half to two billion dollars. You're not getting fired. Right. It goes with the job. I think the, the CISO has to go in and similar to what I did with the, with the board. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. There is no perfect cure. We can reduce risk just so much. Build trust and credibility. Don't make the only time you, the executive leadership is when there is a breach or when there's a problem. <laughs> Get them to know who the heck you are. Get them to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, why you're in the job you're in. It is not that it's challenging. Don't get, don't get me wrong about that. Learn to work with them. Learn to, you know, learn to understand the problems from their perspective. So you said something there that some of the advice I give from, from my past and, and mainly failures is never make an introduction to someone important during a crisis, which is exactly what you said. Amen. If you are, if you are in that spot, you know, I'm tracing this back, speaking with other security leaders, even back to the interviews they had when they started and sort of the mistakes there. You mentioned they have to feel like they're perfect. And I, I agree to that. I think that, that, but I think they also set themselves up. So how do we avoid, you gave tips kind of once you're in, but CISOs as a whole are sort of, most of them are in this bad basket of over promising and then sort of being the sacrificial element when a problem happens. How do we snap that uh, into shape and, and, and begin giving people the advice before they even interview? What, what would you recommend? A couple of things. First of all, absolute candor. One thing I've said a number of times is every CISO runs the risk of getting fired someday. If you're going to get fired, get fired for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. The third to a half of the CISO's job has to be the security evangelist and chief marketing officer for security around the company. It's getting out there, meeting with executive leadership, getting out there and meeting with uh, business leadership and letting them know why you are there and why it's important to them. Not why it's important to you, because it doesn't matter. And your only, your whole role there is to help address and advise on business risk and the level, you know, and how you see the uh, various ways of addressing risk. It's not a fight. It's not a tug of war. The business has the risk. You as a CISO do not. Just uh, here's the risk as you understand it. Here's the impact of what, of what you're looking at. And here are the ways in which you can potentially mitigate that risk. But that has to be done all along. I spent, Probably my first couple of years at City, I got a couple hundred thousand miles a year running around the globe. Just saying, Here the heck, here's who I am. Here's what the program is all about. Here's what security looks like. There is no mystery to it. Here's what we think about. There is no mystery to it. When there's a problem, here's what the problems look like. Here's how, when, you know, our cow falls in the ditch. We want to know the cow fell in the ditch pretty quickly. We want to get the cow out of the ditch. And then we'll make sure the cow doesn't fall into the ditch again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't, it, it's a hard job. It's a stressful job. But my gosh, what you do and who you are are not the same thing. Right, right, right. Well, let me, so it is a hard job. But why, what, tell me, 
and we've not talked about this. Tell me what you love about the job. Like you did it for you're you're still doing it. What what is what is the what's the beauty in it um, from your perspective? It's constant constant challenge. There's always a new problem coming up on the horizon. You also have probably the best community of people you ever ever want to meet. They're smart. They're helpful. They're knowledgeable. I spend a fair amount of time mentoring and coaching current CISOs, new CISOs, CISO wannabes. I coach them. I coach their team in San Francisco and small companies. You're really meeting with some folks who want to do their job extraordinarily well. Most of them are happy to reach out to each other and lend their hands to everyone. Uh, and the challenge has become increasingly more and more interesting. And, but the fundamentals stay the same. It's a business risk issue. CISOs, risk advisors. We are not risk managers. We don't, we are there to advise business executives on risk. Every business executive gets paid to deal with risk. If you're going to be lending money, if you're going to be taking positions in equities or taking positions in bonds, taking positions in uh, mergers or acquisitions, you are taking risk. You're getting paid to manage risk. Here is another risk we need to make you aware of, and here are the, here are the ways the risk can be mitigated. You mentioned in all this work of, of helping out CISOs and being a mentor, what do you think those that need mentoring, which is all of us, where do you put the most effort? What, what, is, what is lacking in terms of self-awareness or career awareness that you see? CISOs come up, you know, move into this wonderful world in a number of ways. Most of them come up through uh, technology. So when I talk to CISO wannabes and new CISOs, it is, okay, why do you want to do this? Especially if you're a really accomplished technologist. If you're a really accomplished technologist, you have the greatest safety net in the world because you can walk out of your company today and a week later you're at a new company with a 20% increase in compensation. Right, correct. But as a technologist, you are used to figuring out how something gets resolved. And the first, you know, our first inclination is, how do I fix this? Instead of, what is it I'm fixing and why is it, why is it I'm fixing it? And whose support do I need to make it happen? Yep. It's a tremendous amount of soft skill, not the hard skill that you need to implement a tool, implement a technology, implementing a product. How do you get support on this? Because every time you bring in a new product, you're going to impact somebody. So you take a tremendous amount of socializing and talk about the so what of everything you're doing. And if there isn't a, and I know I'm repeating myself, but if you don't have a real important, meaningful so what, you're not going to convince anybody. <laughs> and it can't be your so what, it has to be their so what. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Because we're full of, I'm full of so what's, but my so what's uh, are are not valuable unless they're aligned with somebody else's, right? So don't be a so what machine. You can generate them, but I see people that that aren't giving giving it with a proper lens. You you shared something else from a coaching perspective that I think applies probably to all of us, or we should all be able to answer these questions. And the first one was, and I love it because I, I have a version of this I like to ask is. You said, why does your company have a security program? Uh, yeah. Do people struggle with answering that, Steve? Unfortunately, yes. Why? Because what you hear is, well, it's required. The examiner's required. Uh, HIPAA requires it. 
FFI, the examiners require it. The audit, audits require it. Gary McGraw wrote a paper a while back on four CISO tribes, and I, I paraphrased his paper, but it was, it was based on interviews he did with, I'm not sure how many CISOs, and I'm not sure he looked at it as progression, but I sort of do, but tribe one is the ad hoc security person. Oh my God, something happened. Uh, Charlie, go figure this out and go get it fixed. There's no real program. It's just ad hoc. Tribe three is the compliance guy. You got to do it because mommy says so. You got to do it because the compliance folks say so. And everyone there has kids, sort of figures out early on, just because mommy says so doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> right. Is it? The third tribe, or tribe number two, is the technology guy. And technology guy, everything, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. Bring in the tool. And tribe one is the security executive. Uh, different skill sets for all of them. And you can move from one to another, but make sure that's what you want to do. If you're moving, I mean, the person tribe two, the technology guy, is probably really brilliant at what, what he or she does. Does he really want to develop a set of soft skills that he or she may not even possess? <laughs> Correct. Correct. That's a good point. Uh, often we approach these things to say, well, I can do that. I can figure that out. Well, maybe you can, but the effort required is going to be substantial, and you still might not be very good at it. Yeah, it's, and you know, and, you know, the, the scary part is if you, if you are the expert technologist and you decide to climb that hill to the more using soft skills, you go from being expert to being proficient to being knowledgeable. Right. And you may never again climb up that hill again, you know, from being proficient or not, you know, knowledgeable up to proficiency and expertise again. So you're giving up your parachute. You are. You're giving up everything that made you valuable to yourself and probably to your company and to the market. You're giving it, you're, you are knowingly throwing it away, which is a, a big sacrifice. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.